The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to NeuroMatters, the Brink of Alzheimer's with Dr. Sam Brinkman. Our program brings together individuals who struggle with Alzheimer's disease or other disorders and noted professionals who can provide answers and timely information related to these disorders. Now, here is your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Neuromatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. I am your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman, and I welcome you to our program on Alzheimer's disease and the dementias. I was watching an episode of Big Bang Theory on TV the other day, and I thought, I wonder what the concept of research means to the general public. Um, How are research dollars used? What do researchers do? What's the difference between basic research and clinical research? How much does it cost? What research is needed for Alzheimer's disease and the dementias? What does it take, and this is an important question, what does it take to develop a medication that is potentially useful, take that medication through all the necessary research for FDA approval, and then find out whether the medication will be useful or not? Well, we have one of these noted experts today, Dr. Maharvan Sunny Singh, who is currently a professor of pharmacology and neuroscience and interim dean of the Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences at the University of North Texas Health Science Center in Fort Worth. He is also the director for the Center for Her, a women's health center at UNT Health Sciences Center, and serves as vice president of the North Central Texas chapter of the Alzheimer's Association Board of Directors. He has previously been the chair of the Department of Pharmacology and Neuroscience and interim director for the Institute for Aging and Alzheimer's Disease Research at UNT Health Sciences Center as well. So come on in, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair. Let's talk about research with Dr. Maharvan Sunny Singh. Dr. Singh, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Dr. Brinkman. It's a pleasure to be here with you. You know, this would have to be nearly a two-hour program to get all your credentials in as I introduce you. You're too kind, uh, <laughs> but, but I, I, I appreciate the compliment. Well, one of the things that uh, um, I would like to go into some detail with you about in this first segment of the program is the neuropathology. We know that uh, Dr. Alois Alzheimer made some very interesting microscopic observations in 1906, and we know that the hallmark of Alzheimer's disease was those microscopic observations. So would you talk a little bit about uh, what the basic neuropathology of Alzheimer's disease is? Uh, Sure, I'd I'd be glad to. Uh, Alzheimer's disease is characterized at the end stage of the disease when the uh, neuropathologist is uh, uh, reviewing the the brain and looking at the changes in in structure and morphology. What it's fundamentally associated with, what is obvious when you look at the the brain, is that there's a profound amount of um, brain cell loss, uh, neuronal loss. Um, 
And if you look at it in a little more detail, what you uh, notice are two principal um, pathological hallmarks. I guess we could call it that. Uh, one is something called the, <clears throat> excuse me, the uh, amyloid beta plaques, um, which are made up of a large uh, number of uh, smaller molecules called amyloid beta. And when they're uh, processed by the cell in such a way to form this molecule, A-beta as it's sometimes referred to, uh, or amyloid beta, uh, it aggregates. It effectively, effectively forms clumps. Um, and those clumps you could think of as uh, uh, gumming up the, the circuitry of, of, of the, the brain cells, um, which are absolutely critical for us to make a variety of, of decisions, uh, our ability to learn new things, our ability to recall uh, memories from the past. Um, but, of course, the, the molecular pathologies is a little more complex, and we're still unraveling how exactly a molecule like amyloid beta uh, causes the cells to become first more vulnerable and eventually uh, die. But effectively, un <clears throat> excuse me, under the microscope, what you would see are uh, big clumps uh, of these amyloid protein aggregates. Um, and, and so that's one of the key pathological hallmarks. The other key feature is something called neurofibrillary tangles. And uh, these neurofibrillary tangles um, are a result of a particular protein called tau, T-A-U, that's been uh, inappropriately processed by the cell. Uh, specifically, um, it, it gets what we refer to as hyperphosphorylated. Um, and when it becomes hyperphosphorylated, it causes the proverbial railroad tracks of the cell to become disrupted. Uh, I use that analogy purposefully um, so that I can describe a, a piece of biology of a, of a nerve cell that's critical to its function. Um, when, in order for a nerve cell to function properly, it's essential that it is able to transport cargo from, which could be proteins and other molecules from one part of the cell to the other. And it does so via this elaborate cytoskeleton um, and, and uh, these array of uh, proteins that we call uh, microtubules. And those microtubules serve as the uh, railroad tracks for the cell onto which this cargo is uh, transported. What happens when you have the over-phosphorylation of this protein tau is those railroad tracks become disrupted. And when you can't get cargo from one part of the cell to the other, the cell starts to dysfunction. And again, if uh, left untouched and without any appropriate intervention, um, the cell will eventually die. And under the microscope, again, a trained neuropathologist can visualize these uh, neurofibrillary tangles. And ha having described these two major neuropathological hallmarks of the disease, it's also been the subject of intense study to understand how do we avoid forming those big uh, blobs of protein we call amyloid plaques, and how do we avoid uh, the formation of neurofibrillary tangles. But the end result is a very significant um, uh, cell loss in the brain, which I should point out is a, a characteristic distinct of what we sometimes refer to as normal aging or 
um, non-pathological aging where there really isn't a, a, a tremendous amount of cell loss. There is some cell loss, but it's not nearly as profound as you would expect to see in Alzheimer's disease. So sometimes there's this um, belief that, well, Alzheimer's disease is merely an extension of brain aging. No question, aging is an important risk factor. However, there's important distinctions that make Alzheimer's disease unique. Thank you for that very thorough and uh, very easy to understand overview. Let me ask you this. These amyloid plaques and these neurofibrillary tangles, do they occur everywhere in the brain or is it just in certain areas? Uh, they, they do um, show up in a, a, a broad uh, spectrum of areas in the brain. So uh, we're learning more about what parts of the brain are first affected um, and there's even some evidence to say that uh, the pathology of Alzheimer's disease, while it may start in certain parts of the brain um, that we sometimes associate with the limbic system, for example, an area of the brain called the hippocampus, um, uh, that is a key structure of the brain that's important for learning and memory, but uh, we also see some early pathology in the cerebral cortex uh, but there you do see a spreading, if you will, of this disease as a function of uh, the progression of the disease, uh, such that um, later in life, uh, some of the uh, features, while early on, uh, you might expect to see um, problems with uh, uh, learning and memory. Uh, eventually, as you get into the later stages of Alzheimer's disease, you start to see problems with uh, what is referred to as executive function, uh, planning, um, uh, thinking and planning uh, type functions. So, and there are a variety of of ideas as to how the pathology spreads. Uh, Some uh, suggest it may be just going down a path of weakness uh, within the brain. That that is to say there are already some vulnerabilities in the brain and and just like uh, if you pour a glass of water on a sandcastle, it's basically going to follow a certain path based on a bunch of physical chemical characteristics. Well, in this case, what is being proposed is there are certain parts of the brain that may be more vulnerable, so the disease may spread along that path of vulnerability. It's even proposed that the disease may spread just like an infection might spread. Uh, But again, uh, additional research is needed to uh, completely validate either model. So the, the long and short of it is, um, by the time you get to late-stage Alzheimer's disease, you see the pathology really quite widespread. So a couple of things then. One is that um, one would think the more of this pathology, the more of the uh, aggregation of um, um, the beta amyloid and the more neurofibrillary tangles, you would expect a greater severity of impairment. Yeah, that's by and large true. Okay. You had mentioned um, the distinction from normal aging, and yet there's one thing that that continues to um, just, uh, I think, puzzle us, and that is that the presence of beta amyloid and neurofibrillary tangles um, is not sufficient to make a pathological diagnosis of Alzheimer's, is it? Isn't it also the concentration as well as the clinical uh, yeah, so, so the, the, one of the um, methods that uh, people are looking at to um, 
facilitate the diagnosis of the disease. And I, I guess it is worthwhile to, to mention that in diagnosis of the disease, usually there's, um, it's not just a person walking into a clinic and visiting uh, a one time and then a confirmed diagnosis is made, but rather there's a neuropsychological testing that gets done by a specialist like yourself, um, and uh, that uh, certainly uh, points an individual in the direction of a particular form of dementia. And then nowadays we have uh, some uh, brain imaging methods or biomarker assessments that may help define uh, the disease more more specifically. And people can look at um, the uh, levels of amyloid beta and the phosphorylated form of tau in the cerebrospinal fluid. That's been used as one way to further diagnose the disease. Uh, I should mention, uh, since you uh, asked the question earlier about the relationship between the, the amyloid pathology and the disease, there are certainly examples where at autopsy people found brains that were chock full of amyloid, yet they, um, it was recognized that that individual was actually still cognitively quite sharp. Um, so there's not always a, a one-to-one relationship between the, the presence of amyloid in the brain and neurological dysfunction. Uh, and that, of course, makes our challenge as researchers uh, more difficult, more interesting, uh, all of the above. Um, but suffice it to say that uh, we're learning more about those nuances. We're learning, for example, that um, people of different, different ethnic groups uh, may have uh, different risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. There's certainly a difference in risk, at the very minimum, prevalence uh, across different ethnic groups. There's a difference in prevalence and, and maybe risk uh, between genders. Um, so we're learning more about those features uh, that predispose individuals to Alzheimer's disease or uh, all, uh, make them experience the consequence of that pathology differently. That is very interesting, and uh, when we come back from our break in just a minute, um, we might discuss a little bit about the NUN studies and what we've learned from there. Sounds good. We will go to a break, and we will be turn, return in just a couple of minutes. Thank you for being with us. Your life. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. 
Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Every day we face struggles and issues concerning addiction, whether it's ourselves, family members, friends, or other loved ones. On Overcoming Addiction, Hope with Prevention, Intervention, and Treatment, Dr. Joe Terhar helps us all better understand the causes and approaches to addressing addiction with the knowledge that no single approach is 100% effective. From guest experts, families, and addicts, you'll hear about what is and is not working in overcoming addiction. Tune in Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. are listening to Neuro Matters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuro Matters. We are back, and thank you for staying with us. Our guest is Dr. Maharvan Singh, who is a professor of pharmacology and neuroscience and interim dean of the Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences at the University of North Texas Health Sciences Center in Fort Worth, Texas. And I am uh, very honored to be able to call him my friend, and I have learned so much from this man over the years. Dr. Singh, we were talking about the NUN studies before the break. Would you tell our listeners what the NUN studies are? So um, the the NUN studies, sometimes referred to as the uh, Minnesota NUN study, sometimes referred to as uh, the NUN study of, of, of aging and Alzheimer's disease, it's a, a longitudinal study. That means it's still ongoing. Uh, it began in 1986 um, uh, under the leadership of Dr. David Snowden, um, and starting at the University of Minnesota, which is why it's sometimes referred to as um, uh, the Minnesota Nun Study. But it was basically um, a study to examine the onset of Alzheimer's disease and looking for um, aspects of, of function that might be good predictors of the risk for developing Alzheimer's disease in old age. And, uh, you know, one of the, among the various things that, that we have learned and continue to learn uh, from that Minnesota um, nun study is that those characteristics related to, for example, linguistic skills, uh, the, their ability to, uh, their fluency as an example, but those traits in early, mid, and late life, they really do have uh, good relationships uh, with uh, the risk of Alzheimer's disease. Um, but as it related to the amyloid story, one interesting nuance that, that came out of it was um, there were some individuals that had uh, very good cognitive skills, but when at autopsy, those that donated their brains to science, some of them actually had um, a fair amount of amyloid uh, in their brains. So the question became... Uh, well, is is that um, how how do we reconcile that? We we've, we've sort of said that amyloid is a, a pathological hallmark. It's important for the development of the disease. Yet 
here we have some examples of people that have lots of amyloid in the brain, and yet they were sharp as a tack. Um, so, and I think it required people to um, think carefully about um, who may be more or less vulnerable to specific pathological processes. Uh, just like we respond differently to a drug. Uh, you know, some people may say, well, I take one Tylenol and it puts me to sleep, or it really manages my pain very well, or in some other people, well, it doesn't. Uh, what you just taking one pill just to do anything for them. The analogy that I'm trying to draw is um, specific molecular pathologies may influence individuals differently. And one possible um, explanation behind that is, well, um, if we understand further the nature of the amyloid, uh, was the amyloid in uh, little aggregates, the so-called oligomers, uh, and if that was the preponderance of the amyloid, maybe that was going to result in a more significant pathology. Alternatively, the characteristics of the individual. Maybe one individual had a greater um, cognitive reserve, as, it, as it's been uh, coined, uh, a term that's been coined. And that greater cognitive reserve uh, requires that you need a much greater amyloid burden before the person actually starts to experience deficits. All those things could be explanations, but nonetheless, studies like this are very important. They need to continue because they continue to teach us valuable lessons about the pathology, the progression of the disease, and potentially give us insight into causes of the disease. You know, one of the things that has been somewhat of a stumbling block in this area is uh, inadequate study of brain tissue from normal, cognitively very healthy individuals who uh, succumb to death from some for some other reason. And um, I know that there is increased interest in obtaining or having available uh, tissue samples from people who have been asymptomatic, maybe with greater cognitive reserve or maybe, um, you know, with other um, uh, vulnerabilities. But the understanding of the normal brain aging process um, is also somewhat limited right now, isn't it? Well, you know, we, we have learned quite a bit, but you're right. We, we, our tendency is to focus on the disease because that's what manifests itself and that's what triggers an individual going to see their doctor. And, and uh, then once they're uh, defined with having a particular disease, they have, they're candidates for particular clinical studies and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, uh, my colleagues here at the University of North Texas Health Science Center, for example, um, uh, many of them are interested in that very uh, issue, that is, um, quote-unquote, normal aging. Um, what are the changes uh, that accompany the aging process? Uh, what, what such changes contribute to our vulnerability for diseases like Alzheimer's disease? Uh, what are the ways to help maintain a healthy um, a brain uh, so that, we're not just living longer from the standpoint of lifespan, but that we're actually spending fewer and fewer of our years is in, an, in what I'll call an agonal state, a state where we're um, really not having a good quality of life. How do we uh, ensure through this research that individuals are living most of their life in the uh, healthiest uh, possible state? 
Dr. Singh, would you discuss briefly what the difference, uh, what the intended differences are between what we would call basic research and clinical research? Yeah, uh, I'd be happy to. Uh, basic research, sometimes referred to as preclinical research, uh, oftentimes that research is aimed at um, specifically uh, understanding uh, mechanisms, cellular, molecular, biochemical mechanisms, uh, and those types of studies may be done in isolated cells. They may be done potentially in experimental animals. Um, they may be uh, done in cell-free systems, uh, all those types of, of systems to, to understand fundamental questions about the biology of the system. Uh, the system also lends itself to... Uh, modification. Um, I'm, I'm fond of telling uh, my students that the best possible experiment we can design in the laboratory is that where we've controlled every variable, that is to say, every variable is going to be the same across our groups except one, so that any change we observe we can attribute to that one variable. That might be an oversimplification, but still the, 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 the point rings through, uh, um, rings true, excuse me, um, and uh, that is the preclinical or basic science studies allow us to explore fundamental mechanisms through which we can understand the biology of the system, the normal, healthy physiology. And I am of the opinion that in order to understand pathology, that is to say when things go awry, um, it is imperative that we first understand how the, the system works normally. Um, and then we can understand pathology, and that too can be done at the preclinical level. And then once we have a, a good cohort of information, uh, we can typically translate that preclinical research to humans, whether it's first starting with just human tissue that may have been isolated, um, you know, biopsy samples or uh, uh, human cells that may be available through other means, uh, we can see whether the same effect is then translatable to the human condition. And then, of course, eventually you can do uh, um, translate that to clinical trials. But there's a lot of things that, uh, lots of I's that have to be dotted, lots of T's that have to be crossed before we're given permission, if you will, to um, conduct those studies in humans. We have to make sure that um, we've lined up the strongest possible case that um, this particular drug, let's say, for example, is, uh, has a good chance of working in humans. And then you go through this process of starting out small, the so-called um, phase one uh, clinical trial, uh, where you're really screening for safety. Um, you may be even assessing what we refer to as pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic effects of the drug, pharmacokinetics being basically how um, the uh, body processes the drug and pharmacodynamics, how the drug impacts the body. Um, and then you move up the chain of different levels or phases of clinical trials. You get into um, a placebo-based control study, which might be still small in phase two. And then phase three is usually a large multi-center trial where you're basically trying to demonstrate that that which you saw in phase one and phase two can be generalizable to a much larger population. 
You know, in our next segment, I want to talk with you in a lot of detail about what it takes to go from a good idea to an FDA-approved medication because that is a process that I know the public is interested in, and it is also a process that results in paying a high dollar for medications at your local pharmacy. When we come back after the break, if um, if you would not mind, I'd like you to touch briefly on what we've learned about the genetic uh, markers and the genetic aspects of the diseases. So we are going to go to a break now. Please stay with us, and we will be back shortly. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Neuro Matters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuro Matters. And we are back. Thank you for staying with us. We're having a wonderful and very scholarly conversation with Dr. Maharvan Singh. You know, I didn't mention earlier, but Dr. Singh has um, uh, served on a number of national grant review groups. These are experts in an individual field that evaluate research proposals by other researchers and determine whether they are well-designed and relevant and um, worth the investment of research money. He also has uh, is a peer reviewer for scientific journals. In other words, when someone 
someone wants to publish a journal, the uh, a journal article, um, someone like Dr. Singh or myself would review that article, make comments on whether it's worthy of publication or not, suggest changes and things like that. So this is uh, uh, a wonderful, wonderful scholar and professional that we're having the opportunity to visit with. Would you talk a little bit, Dr. Singh, about risk factors and genetics? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. Um, w- with respect to genetics, um, uh, it would be probably worthwhile for me to, to uh, explain that you could think of Alzheimer's disease as really falling into one of two buckets. Uh, one that's uh, referred to as uh, familial Alzheimer's disease, and, and perhaps previously it was uh, um, sometimes you would read it as early onset Alzheimer's disease. Uh, this is the type of Alzheimer's disease. It's called familial um, primarily because it has a very strong genetic component such that um, there are uh, three causative genes that we, that, that we know of and a variety of mutations associated with these different genes. If you have, or rather if one of your parents has uh, that mutation, your chance of getting Alzheimer's disease is 50% if you live long enough. If both your parents have uh, the, uh, that mutation, uh, then your chance is 100%. So from that standpoint, the genetics or the inheritability of Alzheimer's disease is fairly straightforward. Uh, the challenge to the Alzheimer's field is that that uh, simplistic model is, accounts for really only about 5% of all Alzheimer's cases. The lion's share of Alzheimer's cases, about 90%, 95%, um, are certainly have genetic risk factors, um, but as the name implies, having that particular gene mutation or a particular gene type um, in our body does not confer absolute uh, risk. That is to say, just because you have that gene doesn't mean you're absolutely going to get Alzheimer's disease, but it increases the chance of you developing Alzheimer's disease. Uh, for example, one of the most notable is the apolipoprotein E uh, gene, and one of the alleles, so uh, what's referred to as the E4 allele, confers uh, a greater risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. And we both have two copies or alleles of, of genes. So if you have one copy of the gene, uh, your risk goes up um, significantly. Uh, if you have two copies of the gene, your risk goes up greater than tenfold. Um, but again, it doesn't, it's not an absolute. Uh, the other interesting nuance about the inheritability of Alzheimer's disease is that um, recent studies would suggest that if you're uh, from the non-familial variety of Alzheimer's disease, that is the sporadic form, um, if your mother had Alzheimer's disease, your risk is slightly higher than if your dad had Alzheimer's disease. So those are some of the things that we're learning about uh, the, the risk factors uh, as it relates to the genetics. There are other risk factors that we're also learning about. For example, head injury, um, previous uh, stroke, um, you know, and, and, and a variety of others uh, that we're learning can increase our predisposition for developing uh, dementing illness like Alzheimer's disease. Well, thank you for that quick summary. I uh, really appreciate that. Now, I want to pose a situation to you. 
All right? Sure. Let's say that I am playing with my chemistry lab kit in the backyard, <laughs> and I, <laughs> I'm doing this with my grandson, by the way, yeah. and I uh, mix some things together, and I have a compound, and I say, wow, it makes sense that this could be a useful treatment for Alzheimer's disease. So how do we go from that point where I have a chemical accident and an idea? How what does it take to go from there to having a medication in the phase three very expensive studies and under consideration for FDA approval? Uh, good question. It's a complex question, and I'll try to to answer it as best I can. Um, before you even take it into the clinic, you have to do um, the proverbial due diligence. Um, you have to make sure that first in a, a cellular system or in a simpler model that it does what you think it's going to do, and that might be help protect the cell from the toxic effects of amyloid, for, as an example. Um, and if you can demonstrate that in neurons in a dish, uh, for example, then you can take it to another level. You can see whether it also does the same thing in animals. And if it does so there as well, you need to kind of get a better assessment of um, how much of that drug do you need to uh, deliver into the system for it to have an effective, desirable effect while having minimal or no toxic effects or side effects that, that would be um, uh, intolerable. Um, and then once you've done that and you have a, a, a better sense of how the, uh, the body will handle the drug, metabolize the drug, excrete the drug, and you have a handle on any potential side effects, then you can uh, consider uh, request um, permission, if you will, through a variety of regulatory processes to do that a study in humans. And usually what you start out with is what's called a phase one study. And it, essentially, phase one clinical trials are really trying to um, assess safety. Uh, you're trying to make sure that when you apply that drug um, that you haven't, uh, uh, you don't all of a sudden cause the person's heart rate to shoot up through the roof or their blood pressure doesn't drop uh, so precipitously that, that the person becomes unconscious or it becomes life-threatening, any of those types of issues. And these are usually young, healthy adults. Uh, secure the data for that. I'm sorry, you, you were going to say? Uh, yes, and these are usually young, healthy adults at that point. That's correct. Right? These are usually young, healthy adults, and uh, you, you may uh, have a, a spectrum of ranges uh, of age just to make sure that the uh, pharmacodynamics, pharmacokinetic profile isn't drastically altered as a function of young adults or older, or older adults. And to some extent, some of the data that we already have create predictive models about those types of things. But it's not, you know, it, it, it may not be absolute unless it's a drug that we've already known about for some time. Um, and by the way, prior to all that step, there may be some uh, very smart um, pharmacologists and chemists that play around with the drug molecule to ensure that it's uh, the most effective and safe drug that it possibly can be. Well, once you get through phase one and phase two, then it's this large, uh, usually multi-center clinical study um, to look at a particular disease group or uh, age demographic, and you compare it to some control group to see whether that drug has a chance of uh, results in a particular 
desired effect. And you have to identify what, what are those effects that you're going to be looking for. You can't just administer the drug and say, well, we're going to cross our fingers and hope for the best, and, and we're going to look for any signs of positive outcome. You have to be very discreet and very specific before you're allowed to do those types of studies. Um, and if that is successful, then that can then uh, be taken to market. So in, in a sense, from the time that you start the clinical trial process, it can easily be eight years before you get a drug into market. And that's being, I think, a, a generous timeline. And that does not, by the way, take into consideration the time, energy, effort, money associated with developing that lead compound that uh, has a chance to uh, work in the human population. So it's a, a long process. People are particularly careful and thoughtful and, and do their best to do the due diligence to make sure that whatever ends up coming into the market is um, a, a safe uh, compound that has a chance of improving um, uh, the quality of life. In this case, we're talking about Alzheimer's disease. Uh, Dr. Singh, I should point it, out that um, one of the unfortunate consequences of a drug trial that uh, is deemed a failure, and it's deemed a failure perhaps because only 10% of the study group responded favorably, Historically, sometimes what happens is that trial is, in fact, deemed a failure, and the field associated with that drug trial dies a horrible death. Unfortunately, in the past, and we're changing our, our, our tone a little bit, um, in the past, we were seldom given the opportunity to go back and ask the question, what was it about that 10% of people that predicted their successful response to that drug? Um, and so enter the world of, of biomarkers where people are not only trying to use blood-based protein assessments or um, assessments of, of factors that exist in our uh, cerebrospinal fluid uh, uh, to uh, assess not only the disease or to help diagnose the disease, but some of uh, people, including myself, are trying to use these biomarkers to determine whether we can predict those individuals that are most likely to benefit from the drug intervention. Because in a drug trial, you go through this rather exhaustive process of excluding those people that don't belong in the trial, because maybe they have a lot of confounding variables or things like that. But the idea is, what if we've inadvertently excluded the group of people that were most likely to benefit from the disease? Uh, excuse me, benefit from the treatment. Um, and, and so... Some of this type of research is helping us get to those types of questions because I submit to you, in that example I provided, uh, the drug trial was not a failure for that 10% that responded favorably. So we need to make sure we're cognizant of those features and maybe uh, reassess. And, and that's, in fact, going on now. Uh, I, I think the uh, very smart people, far smarter than I, have recognized that that's an important part of the drug discovery process. We have to look beyond the... The, the need to have 80% or greater of the subjects respond favorably, we need to look at things a little more carefully and ask the question, what was it about that smaller cohort of individuals that participated in the study that led them to respond favorably to that um, drug? 
Very thorough overview, and I really appreciate that last point. Uh, we have just about a minute before the next break. Let me ask you this. How many subjects are enrolled in these phase three trials, and how long are they typically followed? And then, of course, you know, just one quick um, guess. How much does it cost to go from start to finish? Uh, I'll answer the last, que- uh, last question because it's an easier one for me to answer. But there's a range. Uh, basically, from start to finish, uh, and you can take the examples from the, uh, the uh, pharmaceutical industry as an example, it takes about between four to the highest example I'm aware of is close to $12 billion per drug. That's billion with a B. Um, so it can be very expensive, um, and in terms of the number of people that can participate in the Phase 3s, it's usually in the thousands. Um, it's usually uh, multi-center. That means it's not just in one location. <clears throat> and in terms of follow-up, um, there, that can be for a very long period of time because as part of what's sometimes referred to as a Phase 4 trials, uh, people will continue following uh, individuals for risks, benefits, and optimal use type considerations. Thank you, Dr. Singh. We are going to go to a break, and uh, I want to again express to you how much I appreciate your willingness to come and educate our listeners and talk through very complex topics and make us feel that we understand them. <laughs> I'm glad to do so, it. <laughs> I appreciate that time. We are going to a break now. We will be back shortly. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Caring for someone with autism can be full of challenges and triumphs. Wherever you are on your autism journey, we all benefit from good information and guidance. Join host Rob Haupt every week for a friendly show that will leave you inspired and informed. Tune in to Autism Spectrum Radio. Our guests include parents, advocates, and experts to discuss current experiences, treatments, and breakthroughs for those living with autism. Listen every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
You are listening to Neuro Matters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuro Matters. Thank you for staying with us. We are talking with Dr. Maharvan Singh, and he is educating us on many different aspects of research with respect to Alzheimer's disease and the dementias. And uh, Dr. Singh pointed out to you the tremendous expenditure uh, of resources in developing a drug from a good idea to the market. And I wanted to point out to our listeners that, you know, the patent on that medication has a limited life. Uh, From the time of issue, it is, I think, 17 years. And many of those 17 years are actually not selling the medication, but are uh, continuing to develop and research the medication. So um, a drug company that has funded all of this has a limited amount of time to get a return on their research and development investment. And uh, when we consider that a large number of these studies don't pan out for a marketable medication, that's a a big loss that has to be uh, recovered in some way to maintain the viability of the business. Anyway, Dr. Singh introduced me a few years ago to a very interesting way to describe the priorities that we have in the allocation of our money. And the the question is, how much money from the National Institutes of Health goes into research for Alzheimer's disease and the dementias? Dr. Singh, would you address that? Uh, absolutely. Uh, right now, it's uh, the the ballpark figure is about $500 million, which is a, a reasonable amount uh, for sure, but it, it, um, uh, it, it doesn't rise to the level of our national investment in some other diseases where we've started to see some uh, significant gains associated with that investment. For example, in 2011, we spent roughly about $6 billion um, uh, for cancer research, um, and I think we're starting to see the fruits of that investment, where the deaths associated with uh, some of those cancers are actually starting to go down. Um, and um, you know, the the other worthwhile mentioning that if if we, for every dollar we spend on research, we spend about two hundred and eighty dollars on care. Uh, I would never dream of suggesting that we need to take money away from the care side and and put it into research, but I think we need a better balance because if we're really going to be serious about tackling this disease, we really have to invest as a society, as a, as a nation, as a, as a globe, um, as a global society uh, into uh, understanding the biology of it, developing treatments and developing better strategies for care and so on. Um, so yeah, it's about $500 million is what we currently spend in the United States through the NIH the National Institute of Health, on Alzheimer's disease research. Now, there are other uh, funding sources. The Alzheimer's Association funds some research. Is that uh, correct? Absolutely, and, and a tremendous advocate for, for the uh, uh, disease, both from the care and uh, research standpoint. Um, they, and they do, uh, in fact, uh, as, as you rightfully say, Dr. Brinkman, that they do support uh, a, a good number of research applications that have the potential to lead to new discoveries. 
you uh, have one had of the a... interesting things as um, I've sort of mentioned certainly to Dr. Brinkman in the past is um, that one of the one of the strategies perhaps to let people know um, how we need to make Alzheimer's disease a priority is to provide a unabashed comparison with what we as a society do uh, for other things and, and, and how that relates to how much we as a society spend on Alzheimer's research. And the one example that, that I'll provide is I, I, one fine day I decided to look, look up how much we as a society spent on Halloween. I'm not talking about corporate America. I'm talking about Joe and Jane Q public um, and, and what they spend. And the uh, from the two sources that I was able to look up, uh, we spend roughly uh, $6.9 uh, billion, uh, that's, again, with a B, uh, in 2011 on Halloween. That includes what we spent on candy, on costumes, uh, and so on. And, and to, to put that in perspective, uh, we blew roughly 14 times the annual research budget for Alzheimer's disease on a weekend. Um, again, I love Halloween. I'm not opposed to Halloween at all. I have a young daughter, and she loves Halloween. But perhaps we need to um, ask ourselves some tough questions about what we need to do to prioritize uh, expenditures uh, down the road. Uh, I certainly see, and obviously I have an element of bias here because uh, we're very much interested in working with the uh, NIH and the Alzheimer's Association towards a cure for Alzheimer's disease. So I, I would like to see more money invested in, in research because I truly see that as a, the key mechanism by which we're going to tackle this awful, dreadful disease. Well, you know, that is an interesting comparison, and, and um, it is funny, you know, but who who would have realized that comparison between the NIH expenditures for Alzheimer's and dementia research versus the amount of money that's spent in one weekend for a, a particular holiday? So that is a very interesting comparison that you make and really drove the point home to me the first time that I heard you lay that out. His presentation is really funny, uh, ladies and gentlemen. This this man is very articulate. Well, <laughs> well thank Dr. you again. Dr. Singh, I, uh, I, again, I, I cannot express enough to you my appreciation for coming on with me and, and educating our listening audience about so many things that are critically important to them in their lives, either with respect to um, their immediate family or perhaps their own future. You know, we baby boomers, and that we exclude you for right now. You're younger than I am, but uh, we <laughs> we baby boomers are coming to the age of risk, and uh, we tend to be um, a lot more um, uh, ambitious in our pursuit of healthcare strategies and healthcare information. And I hope that this program is helpful for people who who are desirous of that information. So. Um, I, again, I want to thank you, you for uh, um, having me on the show. I certainly appreciated the opportunity to, to tell uh, the, your audience a little bit about Alzheimer's disease and hopefully impress upon them that uh, uh, research is vital and uh, uh, we need to enhance the NIH's capability, Alzheimer's Association's capability to fund and support research. 
And we will be in Washington in a few weeks to try to make that case before Congress. Well, in programs coming up, uh, you know, I had mentioned to you last week that Dr. Nancy Emerson Lombardo and her uh, expertise on nutritional aspects of brain function and dementia had to be set back to April 1st. So next week, I am going to uh, put a focus on something called mild cognitive impairment. If we consider that there is a continuous transition from normal neurological and neuropsychological functioning to a state of impairment in Alzheimer's disease, um, then there, um, it, it would make sense that there would be a transitional phase one would go through. And this is what is referred to as mild cognitive impairment, a, uh, a term that was originally coined um, uh, back in 1994, I believe, right about that time. So I will look forward to having that discussion with you. I thank you for listening to us uh, on our program today. And uh, as you have ideas that you would like us to cover during the um, uh, upcoming segments of the program, please let me know by email, sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. I especially encourage you to use the podcast when you are traveling. It's a great way to have uh, stimulating information, keeping you alert while you're going down the highway. So thank you for joining us, and we will be back next week. Thank you for listening to Neuro Matters, the Brink of Alzheimer's. Please join Dr. Sam Brinkman again next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again next week. We'll be right back. 